Now, continuing our series on happiness. How many of you want to be happy? I want to be happy, but we live in a world that is unhappy. We live in a world where information is being argued about. We live in a world where opinions are running rampant, where relationships are being devoured, consumed, and discarded, where families are breaking up, where we're a little confused, where we're a little stressed out, or we may be a little angry, and it appears that there's a war on happiness. And Christians should be the happiest people in the entire world. And oftentimes we're leading the way in this war against happiness. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, even as recently as this morning, on the phone last night, just struggling, wanting to make sense of the way things are struggling with this idea of happiness. Well, it's not new, and that should bring us some comfort, but what brings me even more comfort is the fact that the Bible talks about it. The Apostle Paul wrote about it, and we're gonna talk about that today. We discussed two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, that there's no thing that can make us happy, that if something makes us happy, then there's always gonna have to be something else, right? That if it's a what that makes us happy, then we're gonna be looking at what's next or what else, but that we have to find our happiness in a couple of different ways. And we've given seven weeks of our time together on Sunday mornings to discuss what truly makes us happy. Now, the Apostle Paul, who was, in my opinion, at least one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, uh, not because he was just such a super, you know, spiritual guy from the very beginning, but because he started off rough and ended up over time proving his faithfulness to the Lord through all kinds of difficult circumstances, wrote a message or a letter to a church, a church that he loved, a church that he started, a church that it cost him a lot uh, to, uh, to go and start a church that he prayed for, a church that he visited from time to time. And he was older by the time he wrote this letter, looking back, reminiscing, saying, man, this is like a father to a son, a parent to a daughter. Advice that I would give people I love. I have two boys, one of them's here today, and I love it when he comes to visit. Nathan and his girlfriend Leah are here. Um, it's a long story, I won't bore you with the details, but I decided that I was going to install some LVP in my house, some, some vinyl plank, and my wife asked if I was gonna do it myself, and I said, in fact, yes, I am, and she said, I'm calling Nathan, and so she did. <laughs> And Nathan said, I'm sorry, mom, I'm busy. And Nathan uh, said, I can't come. And she said, you'll be here Saturday, right? So anyway, Nathan came up to help and, and the LVP is installed. Um, but uh, we love giving advice to our kids, although now I'm taking advice from my sons. I find that it goes full circle, but we love to be able to take what we learn in life and pass on to people who we care about and who we love. And this is the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is God, writing words to the church who heard the letter, but also our church who hears the letter many, many, many years later. And he writes this so that they can be truly happy and full of joy. And it's really the secret that rises above circumstance. Some people say circumstances are so much worse now than they've ever been. And I would say it's just simply not true. Circumstances are bad in some ways right now, but by far not the worst they've ever been and probably not the worst they're ever going to be. The apostle Paul understood difficult circumstances. He understood the kinds of issues that we're dealing with and wrote a letter to instruct and inform us on how to rise above. And isn't that what you want? 
to be able to rise above. So this is the, the excerpt from the very beginning of the letter. It's a prayer. It's one pastor praying for the people who he cares about. He says, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now that was the first week. A happy person is a loving person. We talked about loving God and loving people that your love may abound more and more in knowledge. That was week number two. A happy person is a knowing person and depth of insight. A happy person is an insightful person so that you may be able to discern what is best. Now that's in bold. So you know that's probably coming today and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, this is the fourth week of us working through this prayer. And as we work through it and peel back a layer each week, I believe and trust and hope that you're learning more, but not just simply so that we can be more informed, but so that we can truly apply it to our lives and live differently. And I'm gonna tell you right off the bat, today is a message you're not going to want to apply right off the bat. And it's one that you're going to likely want to tune out right off the bat. And I'll share with you the way that I know that. The way I know you're likely going to want to tune it out right off the bat is because I wanted to do the same thing right off the bat. When I find myself diving into the word of God and saying, get out of my business, Bible, God, who do you think you are to tell me how to live? Then I know I got something, right? When I find my own spirit sort of bristle and say, oh, this is too much, this is crazy. Maybe it's not relevant for today. Maybe it was for a different time. Now, I don't believe that for a second, but the tendency, the sinful tendency that we have is to dismiss these truths in scripture because they're difficult. But nobody said happiness was easy. It's simple, but it doesn't mean it's easy. And so today we're gonna to talk about another key, the fourth key out of seven that we're going to discuss. And today is that a happy person is a discerning person. Now discerning is this next section in this prayer. Paul's prayer is that we may be able to discern what's best. Now here's the idea behind this word discern what is best. It is a fairly complicated kind of, a, of a, a concept, but really simple if you look at it in a word picture. If you were to look at, um, for our purposes, a jeweler or somebody who could test fine metals and you brought them a lump of what looked like silver and then you brought them a lump of what we knew would be silver and you hand it to somebody who knows what they're doing, they know how to test it. They know how to shave a little bit off and to melt it down and to see what rises to the surface and to determine the purity. But sometimes things look the same on the outside. Sometimes things look good on the outside. And a discerning person knows how to test, knows how to shave off the particles, knows how to melt it down and knows how to find what's truly good. The Apostle Paul's praying for us. I'm praying for you. And all he does is point and says, I hope you look. And that's all I'm doing for you guys. Today I'm going to point and hope you look. Jesus, as he taught, all he did was point and say, This is the way to true happiness. I hope you look. 
Now, I could have taken this a thousand different directions when we apply this concept of discernment, of testing two things that are good to try to find out what's best. But I try to go back to the teachings of Jesus and read that great sermon that he gave, the Sermon on the Mount, when he explained what it was all about and also references that he makes back to it or references to his teaching in the Gospels. And I found a concept that continued to come up over and over and over again that I thought was a little bit surprising and I thought it was a little bit tough. And it was one of those where I was kind of inclined to dismiss it because I like stuff. And I don't know if you like stuff like I like stuff, but I do. I like Amazon. I like ordering stuff. I like shopping for stuff. I like buying stuff. I like it when stuff arrives at my house. Sometimes I get excited when I see the brown truck with the UPS on the side or the Amazon van with the logo drive through my neighborhood. When I was a kid, I got excited when I saw the ice cream truck. As a man, I get excited when I see the Amazon driver. It's just the way it is. And there's lots of stuff to like. There's cool stuff, right? There's stuff we need. There's stuff we want. And the Bible talks about it. And now I'm going to give you the principle so that you can deal with yourself already and just stay with me. How much stuff do we need? And what are we really spending our life trying to accumulate? So we're going to go to the teachings of Jesus and we're gonna talk about the importance of discerning how much stuff is enough. What it is that we're supposed to live our life pursuing, even though some things look good. What's best? And what that looks like in our life. And my shoes are scuffed because my toes have been stepped on. So I'm gonna allow the word of God to step on yours as well, because that's what friends do. Discerning what's best. When it comes to our discernment, most of us believe that the connection to our happiness is determined by the amount of money or stuff we have. If our goal is to find happiness in money or stuff, no amount of money or stuff will ever be enough. It's not about how much we have. It's about how we manage it or how it manages us. Now, I want us to hear from Jesus. And we're going to be in the book of Luke and we're going to be in the book of Matthew. And Jesus talks more about stuff and money than he does so many other subjects. If you really study it, it'll blow you away. And it's not because he's greedy and it's not because he wants everything you have to, to he wants us to be free from the pursuit of living our life after stuff. Now, I'll give you an interpretive clue. That sounds very impressive, doesn't it? Here's an interpretive clue. When the word money is used in the English, if you have a King James, it might say mammon. I want you to put in your mind the word stuff in there because it's not just money the Bible's talking about. Now, money is part of stuff, but stuff can be an iPhone 13. It can be a brand new Jeep Gladiator. That's what I currently want as far as adding to my stuff. It could be a new driveway at your house. It could be a new house. It could be a new car. It could be a new ring. It could be a new watch. It could be, I mean, stuff. Things we accumulate, things we want. How much is enough stuff? Well, 
discerning how to invest our lives and what we're pursuing is the secret or a secret to happiness. So Jesus teaches in the book of Luke, reinforced in the book of Matthew, that stuff or the unhealthy pursuit of money and stuff is God's number one competitor for our devotion to him. Now, when I'm reading the gospels, if I thought of the number one competitor to my devotion to God, well, I would think he would say the devil, right? Because that's our enemy and we'd all go, amen, preacher, it's the devil. We don't like the devil. But what Jesus is saying is, it is the devil, it is sin, but it's how he uses his stuff and the things we want to creep in and take our allegiance, our heart. Well, let's hear from Jesus himself. Jesus defines greed as the assumption that everything that I have is for my own consumption. And he says, nobody can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and we will despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and they were sneering at Jesus. Now, sneering is an important word. It's a harsh word. It's a powerful word. It is kind of a twofold word where they're looking at him like he doesn't have a clue. And they also hate his guts, right? Now, to a lesser extent, but potentially similar, the way that maybe some of you feel when a preacher starts stepping on your toes about things that are uncomfortable, but things that are true. Pharisees who love their stuff, they heard it all, and they were looking at Jesus like he was crazy and very inconvenient. And Jesus said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of other people. You're the ones who are worried about what everyone else thinks of you. You're the ones who are worried about keeping up, about keeping score, about looking better. You're the ones who are worried about winning in this way. But God knows the heart and what people value, God doesn't care so much about. So here's the bombshell principle that Jesus is laying out. The way that you and I have been taught to keep score in life is disgusting to God. And the only way to happiness is to begin keeping score a different way. I told you it would be a difficult subject for us to track, that it would be one that's easy to dismiss, that it would be one that we would say is impractical because we live in a world that requires or demands and, and, and we get defensive. But if we just settle down for a second and you forget that I'm a preacher and we don't focus on the fact that we're in church, that we're just having a conversation and we allow the possibility of what if to penetrate the defensiveness that maybe we put up, perhaps there's a way to live life a different way. Now, I uh, want to do an example, want to do a little illustration, want to do something kind of fun here for just a second to illustrate a point. Because I still believe that many of us feel um, conflicted about this idea that Jesus is talking about. And I still believe that many of us believe 
that at some level, money and stuff can buy us happiness. Now remember, if pursuing money and stuff is the goal and happiness is what we perceive the outcome to be, my question would be, how much is enough? When are we done? And at what point do we find that what we're looking for? But let's just play a game here for just a second. Let's have some fun together. And I'm going to select somebody from the audience, from the crowd. This is 100% at random. Um, well, it's not at random because I've decided who I'm going to select, but it was random when I came in here. I'm going to select somebody who has no idea that I'm going to select them. And I'm going to present this person with an opportunity, with a business proposal, with um, a challenge. We'll see how well they discern what's good and what's best. Um, Chris Vanderpool, would you mind coming up here to the stage, sir? Chris is gonna be my, my lovely and talented assistant today. Chris, I don't know um, if you're up for this or not. We'll see, you feeling pretty good this morning? Feeling up for it? You feeling particularly smart and discerning? There, then that's much better. You look, here you go. Take this and use the microphone. That helped a lot. You know, come on, separate ticket. There you go. Perfect. All right. You had no idea I was going to call you up here, did you? No. Okay. All right. So um, now you have uh, three boys. Yes, sir. So you're broke a lot probably, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, that's personal, right? Yeah. I have two, so I'm just inferring. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes, you know, they're, they're expensive. Um, do you think that money would, uh, if you had a bunch of money, would it make you happier? You think so? It would take a little pressure off, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, take a little pressure about, off. That's about okay. it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, a, a... This is a proposal, okay? This is a business opportunity. It's a choice you have to make. Yeah, now, right. um, are you aware that in Iowa, our Powerball lottery... 650. 670... <laughs> he's aware. <laughs> $670 million. Um, and um, I've never bought an Iowa lottery ticket before right. this morning, right? Right, right? Now, this is for illustration purposes. The church did not pay for this lottery ticket. The church did not pay for this $5 that I'm going to offer my good friend here. But I'm gonna offer you, this is valid for $570, $670 million potentially in the drawing tomorrow, right. or $2 over face value for this ticket in cold, hard cash, and I want to let you choose. Now, if you choose the ticket, you have to split it with me if you win. Right. That, uh, oh, sure. Verbal contracts are binding sure. in Iowa. Okay, everybody saw that. Which one will you choose, my friend? Will you choose the $5 in cold, hard cash or the, or the false hope I have here in my left hand? Well, no one's going to win it today, so it's, I would say I'd go buy two more tickets and then one $1 ticket for the five. There you go, man. All right. Very good. I'm very surprised. Nice job. Okay, sit down. <laughs> You're supposed to pick the lottery ticket, man. Oh, that's a wise and discerning person. He can go get two tickets and uh, have a dollar left over for a 99-cent coffee. 
you know, Joy and I were talking and I said, Joy, I'm going to go buy a Powerball ticket and give it away in church. And she said, that's crazy. And I said, well, if a pastor you didn't know offered you $5 or a lottery ticket, what would you take? And she goes, I'd take the lottery ticket. You know, she, because you think about it and you're like $670 million. I could do all kinds of stuff with it. And we get very altruistic and holy. Well, I would pay off my debt. I would give money to the church and, you know, I, I would put a foundation together and feed people who need to be fed and buy clothes for people. And we have all these things we want to do and we think about it and our life would be so, but let me ask you a question. Would it heal a broken marriage? Would it help your adult kids make better adult decisions? Would it help your children if they still live in the home, be more obedient, respectful, and devoted followers of Jesus? Would it help with anxiety, depression, loneliness, frustration? Would it help fill the void, the hole in the heart that many of us carry, desperately trying to fill with everything we can find, but never quite seems to be satisfied? Now, would it help? Sure. Would it solve the problem? No way. 70% of all lottery winners are bankrupt within 10 years of winning the lottery. Doesn't help. I have a friend, true story, who has a friend, true story, who had a girlfriend, true story, who was driving down the road and her boyfriend, my friend's friend, in his truck, two of them, hanging out, doing what boyfriends and girlfriends do, just hanging out, driving, talking, who knows? And she played scratchers she bought at the gas station last time they filled up. She was scratching, minding her own business, they're in the passenger seat. She won $500,000 on a scratcher, and this is what she did. I'm not kidding, true story. She told her boyfriend to stop the truck in the middle of the road, which he did. She got out and never saw him again. Gone, $500,000. Now, that leads a couple questions in my mind. I asked my wife, what's the price, <laughs> Joy? How much would it take on a scratcher for you to tell me to stop the truck, right? I wanted to hear a big number. She's still thinking, she's calculating. <laughs> but, you know, what's the price? I mean, 500 grand, I can get out of a bad relationship. I mean, there are all sorts of things that we, we think about. There's a dude in Michigan, used to be a dude, who won the lottery $45,000, which I wouldn't, you know, discard and dismiss, even though it's not $670 million. And um, he went straight to his bar, bought a round of drinks for everyone, went out to jump in his boat, apparently smacked his head on the side of the boat, fell into the water, and died. He washed up on the shore. They found him dead with a lottery ticket in his pocket worth $45,000. The guy got buried. His family got the ticket. What was so important? 
Let's talk about this concept. Let me try to explain because many of us push back and we say, I'm not mastered by it. I don't love it. I don't pursue it. It's not my boss. Money and stuff, I don't live my life for it. We get offended by the language, but let me show, and you know because we live in the same world and deal with the same issues, not just this is reinforced by Jesus' teaching, but I mean, you see it in your daily life, which just illustrates these points that Jesus uses a definition of love by saying devoted to, and he's simply saying you can't be devoted to pursuing stuff and money thinking it'll solve your problems and being the goal in life and also being devoted to God. And there are a couple of of principles. The first one that I wanna share with you is very simple that I think the problem we find ourselves living in or around or within or the problem that lives within us is that we become discontent And I think one of the things that leads to discontentment is just simply awareness. I think awareness leads to discontent. And the Bible says, Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin and and, uh, rust in some translations destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, again, a Bible teaching moment is that back in Jesus' day, there were three types of wealth. They had garments that were really important clothing. They had grain, which is what they ate and what they grew and how they paid for their economy in the, in the villages they lived in. And then they had gold or their possessions that they would bury away and squirrel away in these hidey holes and they didn't have banks. And so there was always a threat that they would disappear. And Jesus says, don't store these things up. Don't pursue these things because these things are temporary. You can die. They can go away. They can leave for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And there's just some important connection in my mind, in your heart, maybe in the the world that we live in, and it's super simple, but it's really powerful, and that is that sometimes awareness, if not properly evaluated, leads to discontentment. And discontentment is sin. The thought that maybe we deserve more, the thought that maybe we need more, the thought that maybe we have more coming to us, the thought that maybe if I had just a little more, I'd be just a little happier. And at the root of it all, well, it comes from this distrust and lack of gratitude to God saying, you know, you really haven't taken care of me the way that I think I deserve to be taken care of. I think I need and want a little more. I trust you for most, but not everything. Stay out of my stuff. Joy used to watch, my wife, she used to watch HGT. Anybody ever watch that? Isn't that the the home remodel channel, HGT? She finally had to stop. Am I saying it wrong? I probably am. I don't like to watch it anymore. It's the home remodel channel where they have people with fluffy hair and, and video crews and do remodels and projects and 30 minutes of TV time. And Joy had to stop watching it. She goes, I didn't know our house was bad till I saw people doing things to their houses that were so cool. She said, I never thought I hated my driveway till I saw what you could do with a driveway. And you begin to be aware of all of the things that are out there, the things we don't have, and we can be discontent. And it's so easy and can happen so quickly. And it can begin to start a rot in us that leads just from simple discontentment, taking us to another level 
of distance and separation from God, and that is I'm going to do unwise things to get what it is that I think I need or I want because I need it or I just simply want it. Discontentment can lead to greed. How many of you, how many of us have done things we wish we haven't done to try to put things in our life that we think we need to have there that we don't really need to have there in the first place? At a different state in a different church, I pastored, I had a really good friend who was part of a friend group. And this friend group liked to camp and they didn't camp the way that I used to camp, which is a tent going out into the woods and putting a tent up and you cook on a stove and you camp camp, right? That's how my boys and I, when we, we camped back in the day, this is the camping where you go spend $180,000 on a class A and, and you drive up and everybody's around and it's got a diesel motor and you pull a Jeep behind it and you go to campgrounds and you tour the world. And there's nothing wrong with that unless you can't afford it. And the one guy who was kind of the ringleader of the friend group, had the nicest stuff, but he also made a ton of money. He could probably afford it. But my friend and the others who hung out with him started doing something. They started buying things they couldn't afford and living a lifestyle that they didn't need. And it was because awareness had led to discontentment and discontentment had led to greed, and greed had led to mastery. And all of a sudden, the gap between Jesus saying, you can't be devoted to one, and also be devoted to God. The pushback that you and I gave just a few minutes ago, well, it becomes real, because all of us are tempted to buy a little more, to accumulate a little more to leverage a little more to the point where we're out of options and we in fact become slaves to the things that we own and the, to, the, to the desires to possess and the choices that we've made to gather those possessions. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where Moths can eat your clothes. Now, this is back in Jesus' day. It's different for us. Same principle. Vermin can destroy your crops and where thieves can break in and steal your gold. I guess that's still the same for us. Greed is the assumption that everything I have is here for my consumption. I earned it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to use it. I'm going to spend it. If we assume... Now, this is a point I want you to really land on. We're almost finished today. If we assume that everything that comes to me is for me, I will use everything on me. You see how far that is from the happiness principles of Jesus? Greed strengthens desire, and desire increases its appetite. And we find ourselves having lived an entire life trying to collect, trying to accumulate, being in bondage to things that looked good but weren't best. And the Apostle Paul says, I pray that you'll be a happy person, allowing God to help us discern 
what's truly good, to be thankful for what we have, to draw a line at what's enough, and to live in freedom in at least three ways. The first way is to give. Now, why would I give? Well, there are a bunch of reasons why we give. But one of the reasons we give is so that we can prove to ourselves and show God that what we have doesn't control us. What better way to show it than to let it go freely? Well, there's another biblical principle that comes after giving, and that's that we save. We save because that brings a certain peace, but allows us to give and to respond when there are opportunities for us to be generous and to give, and shows us, those closest to us, and God, that we're not serving two masters. And then finally, we live, and we live on the rest. We let God decide what's enough. And we find the freedom and the happiness that comes at the end of that journey. And friends, that's a hard one. It's a hard one for me. I suspect it's a hard one for you. But just because it's hard doesn't mean that it's not right. And I love taking these truths in scripture and wrestling them to the ground and allowing God to change me in the way I think instead of me trying to change it and shape it around the world we happen to live in. So I'm gonna be praying for you. You pray for me, let's pray for each other that our love will abound more and more, that we'll grow in knowledge and depth of insight and that we'll be able to discern what's truly best and spend our time spend our energy and thoughts, and spend our resources pursuing this relationship with God. Father, thank you so much for my friend.